everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 14, and we are covering the Hurt Locker. Joining me, as always, is our military specialist, Major Tom Harper. Tom, how are you this morning? I'm good, and I, for those that are familiar with the Army rank structure, I always feel like a specialist. At one point, long ago, <laughs> I was a specialist. And this movie gives us a great example of a... a spe- I, I constantly feel like uh, a uh, an Eldridge, so my mental state. <laughs> Poor I'm Eldridge. Good. We're, we're off the, the sort of Star Wars tsunami has finally subsided from celebration, although with everything else that's sort of constantly going on in that universe, it's uh, it's always something. But finally settled down from that and ready to get back to some good war movies. Yeah. Yeah, so we uh, we we consumed Hurt Locker here and um I was I was just telling Tom that after our last episode and we decided we were going to do Hurt Locker, serendipitously it was on TV like 2 days later. So I watched it then uh and then I actually had the opportunity it was on again last week and I don't know if I own it or not. I don't remember. I shamefully realized that I did not, and you were kind enough to point out that it's now on Netflix. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, it's up on Netflix, which is great, uh, and I think fairly recently too. So that's yeah, that's a big help, and 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 that's a great thing to to mention. Thank you, thank you, Tom, for bringing that up to our listeners. So if folks haven't had a chance yet to see it. Netflix is probably the most accessible place to get it if you don't own it. I had to admit that I didn't own it to marissa last night we were sitting down to watch it she was like why are you firing up netflix don't you this is a war movie don't you own it <laughs> and i kind of paused and i said i know what i'm doing don't, i know don't what i'm doing me. <laughs> <laughs> shook her head <laughs> you That's call funny. yourself a fan of the genre <laughs> that's funny what was uh, actually before we jump into anything? I'm very curious about uh, your uh, baby's uh, reaction and review of the film, as uh, you know she's been known to sit with you and consume these uh, vicious, violent, and uh, language-riddled war films. So we had put her be- to bed right before this went on, but the first IED blast, where uh, the the first one in the movie where Sergeant Thompson gets killed, Guy Pierce's character woke her up because <laughs> we went down to the basement i've got like the the sort of you know one big tv of the house is down in the basement so i was like you know we're not going to watch this uh, in any other place other than somewhere where i can turn it up loud and she's like okay well the moment that the baby wakes up i'll kill you and she didn't follow <laughs> through on that threat but the baby did wake up <laughs> oops oops that was like another bomb going off so yeah. <laughs> she did not like it Nice, nice. Uh, let's say, well, before we jump into a couple of quick network announcements, uh, we did just kick off, uh, in fact, I think it was just released yesterday, our first episode of a new show on Random Chatter Network called Trailer Breakdown. Somehow I got roped into being on this show, and I keep telling people I'm not going to host another show, and then I ended up being on it. I'm not happy with this I'm you're really just glued not. to your glued to your mic 24 7 that's what that it, is it's one of those things that like uh, well friday mornings uh usually lou eric and i will do a uh, a thing for our patreon supporters and a couple weeks ago eric just said oh hey you know since i have you guys here let's just record something else uh, okay 
and that's apparently what started it. So I got, I don't know, Tom, you, you probably have some legal term for what happened to me. Well, there's an army or, term or, or for just that. Idiocy. It, there's a, there's a military or an army term for it. It's called getting voluntold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or go, you got exactly. goat roped into it. I don't know. Goat roped. Yeah. Yeah. That works. <laughs> that works. Uh, but trailer breakdown, uh, basically we're looking at shorter, uh, episodes, maybe 30 to 40 minutes long. And we're going to to be covering in there uh, typically two movie trailers, two uh, uh, newer movie trailers. One may be a little bit more serious. The other might be a little more tongue in cheek. And it's not really a like the detailed discussion of a trailer like shot for shot kind of analysis. It's really more of like from an entertainment perspective. What did you think about it? Were you uh, kind of entertained? Were you pulled in by the trailer? Would this trailer give you cause to go see the movie? Um, what did we like about it? What did we not like about it? That kind of stuff. So uh, that's been something that's actually been kind of a, a brainchild of Eric's for a few years. And we're, we're really happy to be getting into it. It's a, it's a fun show. Our first one is out. And, of course, in typical Random Chatter fashion, uh, the first one does have to do with Star Wars. Uh, and it is the <laughs> trailer uh, uh, that they released for Episode Nine, um, the, the Rise of Skywalker. So that's actually the only trailer that we have in that one um, because, one, we were introducing the concept of the show to people. And... Uh, Two, it was Star Wars, so we tended to talk a little bit longer about it because that's how we roll. So, uh, the other network announcement is uh, there's another way to support us uh, at Random Chatter, and that is through merchandise. So we have opened a T Public store. If you go to, to randomchatter.com/community, there's a link in there for shop. And that will bring you over to our Tee Public store, uh, which continues to grow basically every week or two. We're adding more show logos to it. So right now we have up uh, the uh, classic Chattering Teeth Random Chatter logo. And we have uh, the newly uh, revamped logos for the Guardians of the MCU show, uh, which is our, our Marvel Cinematic Universe show, show, as well as DC Talk, which is our uh, DC Expanded Universe uh, show. And those are both up there. We will probably have um, the one up there for the, the new trailer breakdown show pretty soon, uh, as well as... Uh, Echo Base and, and and some other shows. So we have a whole array up there. They do um, everything from T-shirts to hoodies, uh, uh, long sleeve shirts. They have stuff for uh, for kids. Uh, they even have onesies um, for for infants, not adults, folks. I'm, I'm uh, getting. <laughs> I, I'm going to go on record right now. As soon as the dispatches uh, logo goes up, we're, I'm going to get a onesie that will fit my daughter. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and I'm going to hold you to that because I see when all the purchases come through. Um, you can get coffee mugs and pillows and all sorts of cool stuff with logo on there. So it's a great thing because you get to uh, kind of show your fandom and and support for the network. Uh, and, and actually a small amount of every purchase comes back to the network, which is kind of a cool structure that T Public has. So like if you buy a T-shirt, we usually get like two bucks from it. 
Um, and their prices are really, really reasonable. Their quality is actually very good. I happen to be wearing uh, our brand new Guardians of the MCU shirt. Um, they're really, they're nice and soft, but they're not that like ridiculously thin uh, type of material that a, a lot of shirts seem to be made of now. And they even have like a premium uh, level shirt, which I had gotten uh, last time I when I got our random chatter one. And that's a really nice heavyweight shirt. So uh, the hoodies are incredibly soft and uh, they have their stickers. I got stickers that I've put on stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. That's the only I, I have no uh, no dog in this fight, so to speak. But the I will put in a personal plug. Uh, T Public is my personal favorite place for for any type of shirt. I all of my Star Wars shirts. The only place that I order them from is uh, is T Public. They have a what is it? It's like this tri blend material. It's like the softest T shirt that I've ever had yeah, in my entire this. life. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's, it fits well. Like I'm very finicky with T shirts. They're like I've ordered. Um, if you bought a T shirt at Target, you know how those like that material is. It's not necessarily like breathable. Oof. And it'll shrink really fast, but like the, everything I've ordered from T Public has been not only like I've been really happy with because they're very fast and responsive customer service wise, yep. um, but those are among the only T-shirts where I consistently have people ask me where I got them. So yeah. anyhow, I don't work for T Public and I don't make any anything <laughs> off of that, but I do like their site very well uh, a lot, and they they have high quality. Yeah. Yeah, awesome stuff. All right, so with that, let's get into Hurt Locker. Uh, Hurt Locker was released July 2009 in a wide release. It actually had a small release, I think, just to make award season uh, at the end of 2008. But the the wide theatrical release was in July 2009. I'm not sure why they waited half the year. Uh, I guess maybe just to get in on summer blockbuster season. And that didn't exactly work out for them. <laughs> No, no. Uh, yeah, we're, 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 we'll talk about like how well this movie was rated, but it really didn't make that much in the theaters. Uh, it was written by Mark Bull, uh, who also wrote Zero Dark Thirty. And he uh, basically got some experience and, and inspiration for this. He spent some time uh, embedded with an American bomb squad in Iraq. So that's what really gave him a lot of background information for this and, and inspired uh, inspired this project for him. The movie was directed by Catherine Bigelow, uh, who has directed some some cool movies. She's directed Zero Dark Thirty, uh, so she worked with Mark Bull on, on that. She directed K-19, The Widowmaker. Not a movie that was incredibly well received. I thought it was kind of a fun submarine movie. And then she also directed Point Break, of all movies, which is an interesting movie to kind of have in that slate. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's our that's our, our bit of uh, intro to that. Tom, how about our plot on this movie? So you and I talked before, and I, this movie, if you're familiar with it, if, if you're listening to this having already watched it, it's it's chunked up pretty nicely and it's it's fairly linear since it tracks along the last days of uh, this unit's deployment but it's set in the Iraq war in 2004 I, in watching this movie again it's interesting that this movie was released while the Iraq war was still going on and was made while the Iraq war was still being fought mm -hmm. but the story here centers on uh, a set of fictional soldiers uh, led by Staff Sergeant William James. He's a bomb technician, and he works with his uh, EOD unit. 
He's regularly at odds with his squad because of his reckless and unconventional attitude towards his work, uh, but he surprisingly gains their respect during uh, a series of various missions at the end of their deployment. Yeah, so that's <laughs> probably the shortest plot summary that we've ever had, because I think we're going to talk about this pretty lin- linearly, um, or at least cover a lot of the major story beats of it. Um, before we do get into that, we'll talk about some of the more notable cast members in this. First of all, this is kind of a, a Marvel Cinematic Universe reunion of sorts. Uh, actually, I think before they were all together doing uh, a lot of the MCU movies. So this has Jeremy Renner, who uh, has the headlining role of uh, Staff Sergeant William James. Anthony Mackie plays Sergeant Sanborn. Uh, and then Evangeline Lilly has a 30-second bit in this. Oh, no. Well, it's, well, she has the phone call, but then later toward the end of the movie, she's in it for a couple of minutes. Uh, but a, a, a fairly minor role. Uh, she plays uh, Sergeant James's wife. She's busy uh, working on the quantum realm. So that's yes. why you don't see her a whole lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We have Brian Garrity, who's uh, not really like a big time actor, but but plays uh, Specialist Eldridge, who actually has a really, really important role in this movie. It's it's a very easily dismissed role, I think. But when you realize you can when you look at it story wise, it's, it's a very important role um, and also sometimes pretty comedic. Uh, Ray Fiennes is in this movie for a very, very short amount of time uh, for an A-list actor. Um, he's on screen a couple minutes before he gets killed. Uh, and in fact, in the credits, his character doesn't even have a name. Uh, he is credited as contractor team leader. Um, and he was referred to in the film as that guy. By Sergeant James. <laughs> um, holder Dave, of the bullets. Yes, holder of the bullets. Uh, I don't know where the bullets are. I don't know. Check the dead guy. Uh, and th- that's that's what it was. So, uh, And then David Morse, who has a really great repertoire of movies, a um, lot of cool roles. I, I loved him in uh, in The Rock. Oh, yeah. Which is actually like one of my favorite roles for, for his. Uh, he played Colonel Reed, who is like the greatest fanboy that Sergeant James could have ever had. (laughs) He's a wild man. Yeah. Which really pissed off Sergeant Sanborn because Sanborn is so upset about James's um, demeanor and his actions. And you can basically tell that Sanborn's going to go over his head and, and report him and get him smacked by his superiors. But then that is immediately cut short when Colonel Reed walks up and he's like, you're a wild man. You're awesome. <laughs> and you just see like Mackie's uh, Sanborn's face just like drop. He's like, well, there goes that. <laughs> We're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, some really cool. I mean, really very tight, tight cast in this Um you know, kind of a small central cast. They're, they're, the focus of this was really just on this squad uh, for the most part. So that's that's what we had here. So, um, Tom, what's the – I mean, this this thing basically opens up with 
the death of uh, Sergeant Thompson in um, uh, th- Tom, you want to take us through that? Yeah, but speaking of another um, prominent actor, Guy Pierce has uh, gets to play another dead guy. Yeah, <laughs> so he also doesn't have much screen time. I think that the your your star level was inversely proportional to your screen time. In this that was the yeah. casting deal. How many movies have you been in? Okay. 20 you'll get 20 seconds of screen time yes and then we're gonna kill you (laughs) yeah so this scene is a fascinating one this is where we open up and they're using uh what's called an andros bot a little uh it's actually a uh, real life bot that was built by northrop grumman um basically a bomb squad bot and they uncover they they say it's a 155 so that's a 155 millimeter artillery round big boom that's that's covered up uh an ied and if you don't know uh, this is going to be some this entire movie is about ieds an improvised explosive device i don't know that they ever spell that out because the movie does a really really good job throughout of demonstrating what it's sort of like day to day in the life of a soldier because in terms of the lingo it's a second language you sort of have to pick up on the context of what they're talking about to figure it out and I'm here to tell you that in a lot of cases for a young soldier like a, an Eldridge, um, you're, you're picking that stuff up on the fly just as you are as an audience member. You'll get some of it in training and you'll, you'll pick it up then. But it's one of those things where you either figure out what the other folks are talking about or you just stay permanently confused all the time. And so, <laughs> you know, in that respect, I think, you know, there's a lot of authenticity to different parts of the movie for me counterbalances some of the the more unrealistic parts but that's one real really realistic part so there you get thrown right into the action and they uncover this bomb and uh they decide to to bip it and we'll get back to to that term when we cycle back around to our military lingo but they're going to destroy this bomb and I love Guy Pierce's line. He's like, they want to put a, uh, you know, a bomb. We're going to blow up their fucking road. <laughs> um, and I think, so this is, you know, the context is, this is 2004 in Iraq. The initial invasion is over. And so what you're seeing here is the front end really as the, the, uh, the insurgency really starts to ramp up. And if you were to look at casualty figures from the Iraq war, 04 is where stuff starts to climb. And that's where you have these entities like Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, and just homegrown militias across the country really crop up and start to fight an unconventional fight that um, the army wasn't necessarily fully prepared for uh, right off the bat. Uh, but here it's it's pretty apparent that IEDs are a huge problem at this point yeah. already. And, uh, you know, they're taking safety measures and they decide to, to roll up um, some explosives on a little cart. And unfortunately, the cart breaks and Guy Pierce, Sergeant Thompson, has to, to don the bomb suit to go up. And this is one of the most, I, I think all of the IED scenes are, are intense in their own right. But this scene is really, really intense. And, I, you know... James, Sergeant James hasn't even come into the movie yet, and right. and this is one of the the most moving scenes. Um, you've got Thompson, who's got at this point all he's got is a you know the the protective bomb suit on. Um, he's walking. You can't move all that fast in this this big heavy bomb suit. 
Uh, you've got to imagine he's absolutely burning up uh, in the Iraqi sun, just baking in this thing as he walks up. There are a lot of, of eyes on them, and that, that'll come into play uh, momentarily in the scene. And there's this moment where Eldridge says, you're in the kill zone. And he's like, well, thank you for reminding me. And it's, it just sort of <laughs> sets the entire tone of the scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, this, this scene really, really hit me because the, the back end of it, uh, you have this confrontation between a random Iraqi civilian, maybe a civilian, maybe not, and Sergeant Eldridge, and then, or excuse me, Sergeant Sanborn, and then <clears throat> Specialist Eldridge, who spots what turns out to be the trigger man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably, you know, all this is playing out as Thompson is in a, you know, a really precarious position. If you look at him, the only thing, the only weapon he's carrying is a nine millimeter pistol on his hip. And, and he's sort of tied up with trying to, to get this bomb set to blow up. And at any point, somebody could just punch a button on a cell phone and blow that thing up. And it's those two soldiers job to watch his back. Yeah. And you see sort of the, the struggle with how that, that plays out The I really like the, the confrontation between uh, Sanborn and that civilian, because you see encapsulated in there. I don't know if they, they meant to do this, but you see what's called a, a fairly accurate uh, depiction of an escalation of force. Uh, you see, you have this Iraqi civilian come up and he says, you know, Hey man, where are you from? Are you from California? That sort of thing. Um, you know, oftentimes that was a tactic to distract the soldiers that are supposed to be watching and providing mm-hmm. security, uh, so that the trigger man or, or you know, whoever's going to, uh, detonate the device can, uh, do their job. And so in real life, you have uh, sort of what's called these five S's, the five S's are steps to escalate force and it's shout, shove, shoot, shout, excuse me. <laughs> you say this fast show shout shove shoot to warn shoot to kill hmm. so show is you know obviously he's got his weapon prominently displayed he starts yep. shouting at him he says it's not a fucking meet and greet and he shoves him and then that that takes care of the situation the guy walks off and that's mm-hmm. the whole purpose of that escalation is you you cycle through those steps some cases pretty rapidly um but then the young specialist this you know, 19, 20, 21 year old kid is forced to make a decision. Uh, he sees a guy with a cell phone and I, you know, I don't know what you thought of this, how this sort of plays out over the course of a, a minute or two. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> the, the thing that really gets me with this moment is actually how this moment is, kind of carried over through the rest of the movie because this is constantly the moment that is making Eldridge that, that Eldridge reflects upon. And in every other situation where Eldridge is faced with a potential non-friendly, a potential threat, he's, he, knows like you can see the thought process that he's going through and it's like there's there's maybe a threat here what do i do about it do i shoot him and and he keeps on asking and granted he's the lowest ranking guy there but when he's supposed to be providing the force protection 
for the tech, I, he can't always be questioning himself. And yeah. but it everything through the rest of the movie for Eldridge comes back to this moment all yeah. the time. And and there's that great scene where he's sitting with Colonel Cambridge, the doc, and he's like, "What you know? What are you obsessing over?" And he's like, "You want to know?" And he charges his weapon and pulls the trigger. And he says, "You know." He's alive, he's dead. He's alive, he's dead. And mm-hmm. it's that, that instant that he thinks he hesitated. And it's tough. I mean, you know, think about the situation that he's put in. He's, I don't think they ever say his age, but he's probably, you know, 20, 21. Oh, yeah. And he's on a small team. Thompson, he knows, is relying on him. He's put his life in his hands and in certain Sanborn's hands. And, I, you know, I think about the decisions I had to make as a, 20 year old i you know think about the decisions you made as a 20 year old like you know Mm -hmm. am i going to go to this bar tonight or like you know (laughs) should i buy this thing like he's being he's in a combat zone trying to make the call on whether to to shoot a guy that might just be picking up a phone to call somebody or he might be trying to kill his buddy and it's just this huge moment that uh is really subtly done uh, in in terms of the uh you know the play and you've got them running towards him and he's trying to do it without, he's trying to get him to put the phone down without shooting him. Meanwhile, Sanborn knows what has to happen. He's no, he knows what's about to happen Yeah. and he's telling him to burn him. Yep. And the whole time Thompson, you just got like the pit, uh, pit dropped in my stomach where Thompson is like, what the fuck is happening? Yep. <laughs> he's like watching all this play out. And like, imagine yourself in that bomb suit, watching your two uh, security folks, run towards somebody screaming. Yeah. Um, and then you see the bomb go off and uh, there's just that scene where the shockwave hits him and the, you know, blood splatters against the, the visor and it's just, uh, you know, pretty gut wrenching. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and and that moment that, that opening for the film sets the, it establishes the stakes of this and, and which I mean, really, I, I don't know that it needed to, because quite honestly, every time throughout this movie, when James is screwing around with a bomb, trying to disarm something, I mean, you're, you're, you can feel your heart beating and like you're holding your breath while he's doing it. Um, but to put this right up front really made the movie just kind of, you know, grab you by the throat. Yeah. And it sets the tone for James to enter the picture because yeah. you've got these two soldiers that up to that point, they, they've got, what, 38 days left in their deployment at that point in time. So you think they've lived through uh, probably 300-ish days so far, mm-hmm. plus all the train-up that they likely had with yeah. Thompson. They were yeah. tight with Thompson. I mean, think back to our Band of Brothers podcast and you know the, yeah. the episode Replacements. Um, that's a real thing. And, uh, you, you know, they watched him die right in front of their eyes. And I think Thompson in the brief time that you saw him is like the polar opposite. He's much more like Sanborn than he is like James, uh, technically competent, uh, but also somebody who values that sort of traditional soldier, soldierly leadership. Um, you know, and, and all of a sudden both other, both surviving team members find themselves without him. And they get this cowboy that enters the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, that's set a lot of the stage for it. And there's such an undertone, but an obvious undertone through this movie of how 
people will react differently to the stresses of, of combat. And this is obviously a real thing. This is something that we were dealing with back in, I mean, at least in a structured way in World War I. Um, still somewhat dismissive. Got a little bit more serious about it in World War II. Uh, but there's still, well, I mean, there's still stigma about it today, but there was a lot more stigma about it then. Uh, and then up through Vietnam and, and up through present times where we're, the the military and as, as kind of one structure, and Tom, I think you can probably speak to this better than I can, but we're trying to train our leadership to be more aware of the effects of combat stress on our soldiers actually in the field and how they're handling things and how they're dealing with things and trying to get mitigation measures deployed in the field to help them deal with these things instead of it being this wall that they just suddenly hit, which then completely takes them out of combat and, you know, we ship them home and now we're dealing with someone with PTSD at once it's really truly taken hold instead of dealing with combat stress up front. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I will say from my personal experience that the, the pre-deployment measures and post-deployment measures that are taking now in terms of mental health and, um, you know, tied right along in that is, you know, stuff like traumatic brain injuries, the, the concussion uh, type treatment and whatnot looks completely different than it did at the start of the Iraq war. And I think the movie does a good job of at least hinting at that. I mean, it doesn't really make a huge issue uh, out of it, but that first interaction you see between Eldridge and uh, the the doc when he's sitting mm -hmm. there playing was that gears like the first gears of war maybe yeah, yeah. Um, on Xbox and the doc is just like you you have to stop obsessing over this you can't like just get get your mind off of it and it's sort of like the World War Two equivalent of like you know just you, you got a little shell shocked why don't you just shake it off play some play some games in here and then get back out there champ. Yeah. And uh, I think that mindset was still not necessarily the mindset, because I think the desire was there to help soldiers. But as you put it, that lack of realization of the full sort of impact of, of these operations um, on fo folks across the board, not just infantry soldiers, um, but folks like them, too. So, yeah. And, and we, we see a very similar thing, which uh, also isn't being addressed to the best of its ability here domestically with a lot of first responders as well. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, having worked in that field here for over 20 years, I mean, I, I can speak to that, that it's, and, and things impact people differently. I mean, you've, you've got people who have gone through their entire career, seeing a lot of bad stuff, generally unfazed by it. And you have, you know, other times where, it's a it's a buildup of things. I mean, as a responder and also in the military, you you see people at their worst all the time, uh, especially in these types of, of combat zones for for the military. And as a first responder, I mean, every time someone calls nine one one, they're 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 not calling nine one one so they can make you a cup of coffee. Uh, they're they're calling nine one one because something bad has happened, and 
you know, so it's it's kind of that repetitive exposure to these things. And in in kind of its singular form, it's pretty easy to to dismiss or to shake off, but that constant exposure can can wear you down. Uh, and then obviously there are other occasions where it's something that's, you know, big, um, that's psych- very psychologically impacting. It's, it's, uh, it's messy or disturbing or whatever the case may be. Um, and then you can escalate things to like the disaster arena that I've done a lot of work in where you have mass casualties and mass fatalities and, and that kind of stuff. And, and it, it absolutely does wear on you. And I think that's why the you make a really good point because the, in the the context of the movie, I think they very purposefully set this at the end of the deployment. There's not really any other yeah. like time measure, but it's always tracked back to the number of days left. And mm-hmm. so I, you know, it'd be completely different if this was like the start of their deployment and they've got eleven months ahead of them or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But this is the end for them, and every day I, I think there's a line from. Uh, between Eldridge and Sanborn, Eldridge says something like 38 days left and Sanborn's like 37 if we survive today. Yeah. And that's sort of the mentality. You, you think about like how quickly a month goes by for you, but you know, a month, especially as you're getting close to the end, I mean, it can go incredibly slow, uh, particularly when you're constantly exposed to danger. Yep. Uh, and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, you don't get to, to just sit on the sidelines because you're almost out of there. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the, the folks behind the movie very intentionally use that as the only reference for time. Yeah. And, and yeah, and it, kind of like you indicated, it's this they have the, the light at the end of the tunnel, but then it's also they end up with such reservation, probably much more reservation than they have early in the deployment of like this. I hope I make it. You yeah. know, I just want to get out of here. I want to go home. I want this deployment to be over with. Um, except for James, of, yeah. of, of course, because like this is all he can relate to. And we start as the movie goes on, we see that more and more. And obviously at the very end of it, you're kind of punched in the face with it. But you see, and it's not that like he revels in it. He just very like kind of robotically does his thing. And he's really damn good at what he does, but it's kind of like all he knows, you know, it's all he's comfortable in. Uh, he He's, it, it's an interesting perspective. Like when you uh, up close, you look at him and you're like, Oh, okay. This guy's just like a, he's just a, he's just a hot shot you know, doing his thing, but you like, you take a step back and you realize this is his thing. This is the thing that he knows. It's what he's good at. It's the world he lives in. He can relate better to these bombs than he can people. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a strange perspective. It's a strange perspective. And and oddly enough, we all know people like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously very different settings, but we all know people like that who who have such focus on a certain task or a certain thing, and that's what they do really well. Uh, and you take them out of that environment, and now they're just kind of lost puppies. Yeah. I think you see him – you see James have more – 
interested he's more interested in his conversations between him and either the the phantom bomb maker that put it together or the bomb itself in the movie than you do with between him and any individual character and i i think that speaks to your point it's also a good segue for the first time we see him in action because they meet james Mm. on base at uh at camp victory there camp victory itself is an interesting it's interesting that they set it on that base because we talk about there's this juxtaposition that's sort of always there uh between you know some sense of normalcy and then the carnage that they face every day and victory was a real life base it sat uh, on land that it sort of surrounded the baghdad international airport but you have a it's a big base it was the headquarters of the uh, what is it MNFI so multinational forces Iraq and then that later transitioned over to, to US forces Iraq but the reason i bring that up is because not every soldier on that base um was a combat soldier uh, or was going outside the wire so to speak um on a daily basis and you see that play out in this movie um you see it most prominently probably between um Colonel, I'm blanking on his name, Cambridge, Cambridge? the doctor. Yeah, yeah Colonel mm-hmm. Cambridge, the, the sort of well-kept doctor, and Eldridge. Uh, you know, Eldridge kind of makes the comment that, you know, he should try to, to see what the other soldiers see every once yep. in a you know, sometime. And I'm here to tell you, on a big base like that, that's a, that's a real big juxtaposition. You'll go on the base and there'll be niceties, there'll be, you know, you know probably some good food to find that, they're, as you see in this movie, maybe a little bizarre where you can buy, uh, you know, little trinkets or DVDs and stuff like that. And then, you know, not too far outside the gates, it, it quickly can become hell. And not every soldier that's walking on that base has the same experience. And I think they very intentionally, rather than put it, you know, set these soldiers on a forward operating base or a, a combat outpost where it's nothing but folks that are pulling triggers, um, you know, they set it in a, a big base like this to provide that that sort of juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, uh, you know, to segue into the first time we see him in action, they they go out for a call uh, from some soldiers that get a, a report from an informant. They saw some wires going into the dirt. Yep. Um, and that sort of like encapsulates, you know, IEDs and, and sort of that experience in a nutshell. Because it can be so, a report that simple and it's something that simple that could you know, end your life and, and end a lot of folks' lives. And it's interesting. You, you pair that with, they get on the ground there and they're kind of looking around this abandoned alleyway road. And James makes this offhand comment, you know, watch your feet. That's because IEDs can be literally anywhere. I mean, they, yeah. you know, the, the folks that are planting these things, it's very easy to dismiss some of these insurgents as simpletons or, folks that don't know what they're doing how could they ever stack up against the the mighty u.s military but these are they've got some really smart people and really dangerous people in their ranks yeah and i'll tell you i mean military eod teams you 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 know read or 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 listen to to stuff about what they do they spend more time tactically approaching roadside garbage than anything else. I mean, they're doing yeah. a lot of like, you know, legit disarmament of IEDs when they find them, but essentially everything is suspect. Yeah. You, 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 there, if there's a pile of garbage that looks out of place on the side of the road, 
uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're probably going to approach it with an EOD team um, because it, it very well could be covering up uh, an IED. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing Sanborn makes the comment as they're, they're in uh, James's uh, booch one day, uh, they, they find all the bomb parts that he's got mm. and Sanborn is disgusted. And he's like, this is all just shit from Radio Shack. And that's <laughs> the frustration because these, these folks are putting together these incredibly deadly bombs using stuff, ordnance that's stolen from the Iraqi army or just surplus. Yep. Um, or in some cases stolen from the U S sure. And then they're, they're rigging it up with, you know, 50 cents <clears throat> in wiring and stuff. And yeah. it, you know, it can, it can take you off this earth. And I, you know, there's a certain level of frustration in that, that, that your life could end over a dollar 50 in, in parts. Yep. And the, I, I, they don't get into this a ton. Uh, you see it a little bit in, in terms of the sophistication that James has to deal with in the bombs, but the folks that are planting these things, it's like the Borg. If you're familiar with Star Trek, the Borg is this like alien race that constantly, like you can never use the same weapon against them for too long because they adapt and then it, they become impervious to it. Right. And in the same way, these bomb makers and these insurgents, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, they learn quickly. There's mm -hmm. a reason why, like in the scene we'll talk about in a second, where he's disarming the, uh, the car bomb outside the UN building, that they're videotaping things mm -hmm. they they're learning consistently observe our tactics they they figure out what we do to defeat certain bombs and it's not a loss to them if they lose you know a bomb or 10 bombs because mm -hmm. in a lot of cases the information that they can glean from that is invaluable and you know we we found ourselves particularly in iraq and then you know also in afghanistan as the the surge there happened in this constant race to advance our technology to defeat these these changes that they were making mm -hmm. uh so that they could defeat whatever tech that we had so yeah you know they <laughs> it's just it, it's fascinating because these are folks with um you know little formal education folks that you would probably objectively just cast aside as as you know undeveloped and you know how could they ever stack up against us but they're a deadly deadly enemy yeah yeah, especially with you know non-conventional warfare like this. You you, you mentioned the um, the the car bomb in front of the UN building, and the lead up to this is actually one of the funniest moments in in the movie. <laughs> and that's uh, they the the squad gets there, and James talks to uh, or he gets approached by the. Uh, officer from the, the national police force. And James says, well, you know, what, what do you have? And the officer says, well, you know, there's, there's a car around the corner that has, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely looks heavier than it should. It's, it's, you know, sagging in, in the back a lot. It looks like there's a lot of weight in, in, in the trunk. And, and the response that James has is, well, why don't you go over there, take a look at the trunk and let me know what you see. <laughs> I love, I mean, I die laughing every single time I hear that line because yeah, the, the look on the, 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 the officer's face is like, 
you want me? <laughs> and, and James is like, yeah, no, not really. It, it's it's fine. We got this. <laughs> I just I I love that moment. I think that's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, well, that's sort of like James in a nutshell, and and why he con- contrasts so distinctly with Sanborn. Yeah. Um, James is a just a an absolutely profound technical expert, somebody who's who's trained to a T, and as you said before, he he knows he's hot shit. He knows what he's doing. And he's got that that sort of confidence that pervades everything that he does. And to that end, you know, the the soldiering stuff, I think he views to a certain extent as something that gets in the way Mm -hmm. of him doing his job. You see that when they uh, that that first IED that they take out, he pops a a smoke grenade and completely obscures Hmm. Sanborn's view. Sanborn's like freaking out and, and, you know, asking if there's a threat and this sort of thing. Yep. Um, on the other side, you've got Sanborn, who's your, your prototypical non-commissioned officer. Like Anthony mm-hmm. Mackey could not have played him any better. Um, you know, I think you could take his, his acting and drop him into a unit and he would fit right <laughs> in. And, you know, Mackey's the, the, I don't think you see a, a, a ton of technical stuff from him, but he's, he's technically savvy, but he's also uh, constantly aware of his position and his responsibility, particularly as it pertains to, to Eldridge. Yeah. Um, you know, I think especially in the wake of Sergeant Thompson's death at the beginning, he takes this weight onto his shoulders that he's got to watch out and shepherd him to get him out of there safely. Yeah, Absolutely. So we get into uh, this moment here with the 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 V bid the the big ass car bomb, and that is just really the whole thing here is really intense. And you know, James, uh, this is this is the one James approaches. He's in the bomb suit, then he takes the suit off, right? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. if he's gonna die, he's gonna die comfortably. <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean the reality of it is with that much explosives, that bomb suit is not going to save anything. Uh, it's it's he would still get vaporized in in that proximity to to that much explosive, and and it also from a technical standpoint, it would make sense for him because he's got to be able to maneuver. And you see, he crawls around the car. He's looking for the 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 triggering device. He's following wires back. That kind of stuff. And, you know, spending a, a, a lot of time with this stuff, of course, making uh, Sanborn and Eldridge really nervous. And as you mentioned, they see, you know, someone's got a camera. There's someone over on, on another roof that's watching. And these guys are really jittery about this stuff, trying to figure out what's going on and, and who's doing what to who and, and all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, James gets pissed off because Sanborn is constantly checking in with him and constantly harping on him. So James takes his headset, throws it off into the street and he's doing his thing. And of course that pisses Sanborn off that, uh, you know, it, it, in the end, once this whole thing happens, you know, and, and, and James is back, uh, he lights a cigarette and he's sitting sitting in the Humvee and Sanborn com- comes up and, you know, knocks him right in the face for, you know, don't, don't you ever take your comms off again. And, you know, you've you've got a a, a a subordinate position, you know, someone in a subordinate position doing this, but they are a team and they need to move as a team. 
and you know Sanborn. I mean, basically, James disconnected himself from the team in in doing this. So yeah. Well, and I think this goes to to the point that you were making about James's obsession that he tosses off the headset and can't hear Aldred or excuse me Sanborn saying that the building is cleared. Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit if they just blow this thing up at this point, right? That's yeah. the safest thing to do. Totally. Yet James is James has got this ego trip that he needs to figure this thing yes. out. He needs yeah. to disarm it. He needs to defeat this person and and be able to to I don't know prove to himself whatever the case may be that that uh, he can fix this thing. And I think this is probably the most complex bomb that he finds. Yeah. And he like it's like he gets obsessed over the whole thing. And mm-hmm. you know he's having a conversation with himself and potentially the bomb maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just totally and completely consumed. Meanwhile, <laughs> poor uh, Eldridge is just like behind the blast wall, like. Is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it, it, well, and I'll tell you quite honestly, um, there there is, I, I guess, it, jumping up a bit to some of the behind the scenes stuff for all the accolades that this movie got. Um, this movie was ripped apart by bomb tax. <laughs> they they were the audience who were like, none of this is realistic. Uh, yeah. you know, not it's it's the attitudes, the approaches, the technical stuff. They're like, no, none of this is realistic at all. Uh, and from my really small bit of experience with explosives, um, and, and I I did a uh, I did some time with a homeland security uh bomb class. It's a very cool experience out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. It's actually operated by uh, New Mexico Tech. They have a, uh, what is it? It's the Energetic Materials Research and Training Center, EMRTC. And uh, there's some mountains in there. So a lot of the stuff that they do is kind of contained within this small little mountain range. Uh, Mythbusters uh, early on used to do a lot of stuff there uh, because it is a uh, it, it, it is a bomb range and everything in there is regulated and they've got safety bunkers and all sorts of stuff and a range master and, and all that. Uh, the military does some stuff in there, but DHS runs runs a school in there. They, they do a few different classes. One is, is focused on um, suicide bombers. The other one, uh, which I did, is uh, kind of more analytical across all types of explosives and it's it's neat because it's kind of a combination of classroom and field work the classroom stuff you're learning about all the your you know primary secondary tertiary explosives and there's a lot of chemistry and physics involved in it and then you go out in the field and then you actually get to essentially play with the stuff that you just learned about and so they'll set up uh, you you basically blow up a lot of um, plywood and watermelons is really what it amounts to uh, out on the range. But it's like, okay, well, this type of explosive is a cutting explosive. And, you know, you set it up on plywood and you detonate it and you see, wow, there's a, an exact circle there that, you know, that's was the shape of the explosive. Then you have other explosives that really do like explode out. And so then you, you get to see those things. Um, and we went, you know, bigger and bigger. 
as as we did it and and it's because it is a range and and the range master um obviously safety is a huge issue there so everything is checked and double checked and triple checked and then when you do have a detonation you're going to a safety bunker and depending on the size of explosives your 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 bunker is a certain distance away the the capstone of this is we actually do um we put together a, a, a car bomb uh, we load 500 wow. pounds of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, uh, info into the trunk of a four door sedan. And, uh, you know, we help them set up the, the, uh, explosive chain for it. And then we go to the bunker and the bunker that we go to for this is a mile away. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, and when they detonate it, I mean, you can you you actually feel it before you hear it. Uh, you feel it in your in your chest, in your sinuses. You you feel that pressure. I mean, you can actually see it's very much like Hollywood. You see the shockwave because it's hmm. all it's all dry, high desert there. So there's all sorts of dust and shit all over the place everywhere, and so you see the shockwave moving out from it. Um, and, and moving towards you and, and, you know, you're in literally we're in a bunker. We have, it's a, like a, just a bunch of mirrors, basically a giant periscope that we look over the bunker with. Um, and, and so inside there, you can still feel that shockwave and then you hear the explosion, but the proximity that these guys had in the movie, particularly in this scene to this car bomb, um, they, they would have been killed. Both Eldridge and, and Sanborn, especially unprotected, they absolutely absolutely would have been killed. You know, Sanborn telling Eldridge to get behind the Jersey barrier. Sorry, that would not have saved <laughs> shit. Um, and then to kind of just to, to to close out my training experience here, a lot of this was also some forensic analysis. So you're looking at post blast. What do things look like? What are you looking for? That kind of stuff. And um, in this instance with the car bomb, most of the car is simply vaporized. There's wow. there's very little to find from it. You have a giant crater. Most of the car is vaporized. You find little fragments of car here and there, um, and then uh, the the front end, the the front axle of of the car is probably about thirty percent intact, and it's pushed into um, into the ground, and and that's it. That's all that's left of the car. The whole fucking thing is vaporized. It's it's amazing. It's incredible. I mean, huge, huge amount of power and really gave me a lot of respect for the shit that our troops go through and, and deal with. Um, in fact, they, they also showed us a lot of videos because I mean, unfortunately that's where a lot of like real life, uh, footage exists of these things going off is, um, you know, in places like Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And, um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, a little bit of criticism of the re the reality of the movie. Nonetheless, it's still, a, I think, a really great movie and really fun and really well done um, and still very, very intense. But, and, and this whole scene is just like kind of this particular scene right here puts a capstone on how James does shit, um, not only for us as the audience, but also for Sanborn and Eldridge. Who then have a conversation soon after this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because they they're next uh, just doing a, a couple controlled deaths, and James has to go get his fucking gloves from one of the sites. 
And he's and like, Sanborn such, has a like almost serious? an asshole about it. Yeah. Like the first detonation, he's like, oh, shit, guys, I forgot my gloves. I'll be right back. <laughs> like no other conversation. He just jumps in the Humvee, goes down there. Yeah, right. He gets out of the Humvee, grabs him, and you see him. He waves him up in the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then Sanford has the conversation where he's talking about accidentally triggering a detonation down there. Like, you'd have to write the report. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, what's funny is the audience is in the same position that Eldridge oh, is in, totally. trying to figure out whether he's serious. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. You know, he doesn't ever say he's joking. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's he's probably serious on some level there that. Uh, that could be a resolution to their problems that this guy that's consistently endangering them, yep. um, you know, could be gone in an instant. It vaporized him. There'd be no trace. You could have a piece <laughs> of his helmet, maybe with some burnt hair in it. <laughs> and, <laughs> the sad thing, I like that, that came right back to like be sadly real when Colonel Cambridge blows up and yeah. all, all they could find of him is a piece of the helmet. But Anyways, but the, after they leave that, then you, you get this non-bomb situation where they run up on, um, I guess they're supposed to be British contractors. They're definitely there um, pursuing some reward money for some detainees that are in that old deck of Iraqi um, high flying target cards yeah. That, yep. yeah, that were real famous early on in the war. Um it's actually a really interesting, you know, scene all the way around, just because it's it's so different than the rest of the movie, um, and you get this like sniper standoff between an EOD team and uh, some some Iraqi insurgents there. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and, and I I didn't even realize until it, probably like the third time I ever saw this movie that that was Ray Fiennes. Yeah. <laughs> who, who was the leader of this Briefly. group? It just it it he he definitely changed his accent and uh, and then with the headscarf and all that, like I just couldn't tell it was him. Yeah, I love the moment where he's like the the, the detainees are getting away, and then he runs after him. He's so upset because it's a they represent a five hundred quid bounty 500,000 quid bounty mm -hmm. and he shoots them in the back as they're running and he's like oh I forgot it's dead or alive and he's just laughing <laughs> <laughs> yep yep uh, yeah so it's it's quite a situation that, you know they get um, I, I don't know that it's necessarily really an ambush because they had been there for a while they ended up there because of their uh blown out tire or whatever and um but that gave enough time for some insurgents to set up in a, a fantastic sniper position i mean it's you know when you're a sniper you're looking for high ground and these guys found some old bombed out building just in the middle of nowhere and they took up position on it uh and were able to really get these guys down and and uh as it turns out this um ray fine's character is is one of the two that was uh that was killed in in the initial assault of this and you see james and sanborn really step up interestingly enough the the other uh the remaining contractors that were there really didn't do shit no 
James and Sanborn step up. Sanborn shows off some damn fine shooting skills. And uh, and he's actually supported by James, and and w- which is an interesting take. That, and I think this is where, especially, Sanborn gets some respect for James because James didn't try like cowboying this. He didn't try taking it over. He stepped into the role of spotter. He helped Sanborn out with everything he needed. You need more ammo? I Hey, kid, get me more ammo. It's uh, The dead guy probably has it. Give me some juice. And he opens it up and he lets, lets Sanborn suck it down instead of taking it himself. I mean, he does everything there to support Sanborn, which is this role reversal that we don't expect, they don't expect. And, and kind of just like you said earlier that uh, about you know the audience is along for the ride and not knowing if if Sanborn was was serious about killing James or not the audience is basically goes through this story with the characters where we're experiencing these things with them yeah and you finally I, this is where you finally see James step up as a non-commissioned officer as a leader he supports Eldridge, um, or Sanborn rather, in the sniper position, and then he also supports Eldridge. He slides down Eldridge's freaking out, trying to get the the blood off the fifty cal rounds for the sniper rifle, and he yeah. slides down and he calms him down and he helps him execute the task. Spit and rub, and man. Eldridge Spit and rub. Like, What's that? Spit and rub. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then Eldridge once again finds himself in the position where he's got to make a judgment call on a potential threat. And James doesn't take it over, doesn't berate him or yell at him. He just says, you know, make the right decision. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately he fires on the insurgent and kills him and uh, probably saves him from that, uh, that threat. We, we, we also see that Eldridge's shooting skills weren't that much. He spent an awful lot of rounds to kill the one dude that was in there with the sheep on the, on, on the, the railroad tracks. Like, a lot of firing. And I'm like, what the hell is he firing so much for? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I, I mean, that's exactly what was needed. And, you know, that's the support that he needed to provide. He was basically... Uh, you know, rear guard for them in in that position, and that was their one vulnerable position because that's uh they didn't have that kind of um the the depression that pit that they were in didn't have that cover from behind, and they had a big exposure there, and and Eldridge was uh you know real good eye on him for for seeing this dude in with the uh with, with the with the sheep, uh and again the contractor the other contractor that was there dude was not doing his shit so he just didn't seem to be on it very well so uh following that whole thing like this seemed to like kind of boost the camaraderie in the group and then we see a bunch of uh uh tomfoolery if you will drunken tomfoolery <laughs> uh ba- back back in the barracks these guys are horsing around and and punching each other and all sorts of wacky shit uh and and then but of course James then takes it to the degree that he he <laughs> he, he crosses the line with it fucking rides him like a 
cow or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that gets his neck slit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then I, you know, this, it's, um, I think we've talked about in another episode that there are reasons why alcohol isn't allowed in combat zones, but nonetheless, life finds a way. Yeah. As Dr. Malcolm would say in Jurassic Park. That's right. And, you know, they're dicking around and it almost, almost turns bad. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, another one of the, you know, the problems that goes along with being on a base like that is, uh, access to things like that. And then you see at the bazaar, there's that young kid Beckham. That, yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk James about Beckham quickly. because Beckham is very important to James story. Yeah, he so this is the little kid that sells DVDs and James just sort of immediately takes to him. He's like this foul mouthed kid. It, I don't like I'm trying to think where he must have learned English from and it was probably like the base. Uh, you know, every <laughs> <laughs> every R-rated movie and like explicit <laughs> cassette tape or CD that he could get his hands on. Mhm. <laughs> Pretty George much Carlin, probably. <laughs> and so they they just sort of immediately form this bond, like just messing with each other back and forth. And it's funny because you do see him with his own kid at the end of the movie. You never see him talking to to his kid. You know, it, it, I think his son's a, a pretty much an, a baby, but you never see him talking on the phone to him or anything like that. But you see him forming this bond with this strange kid. Or stranger, um, who's just on the base selling movies, and then they get a call out to what turns out to be uh, a bomb making factory insurgent bed down. I mean, it's sort of like an insurgent headquarters mm-hmm. of sorts, and probably one of the the most visceral scenes in the entire movie. They find a dead boy that. James is convinced is Beckham. Right. Uh, and he's been turned into a bomb, a body bomb, as they call it. Which is some really seriously gruesome shit. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn. He fucking cuts him open and to remove the bomb, and it's, yeah, it's awful stuff. But uh, the, you see nothing affect James the entire movie until this point. Right. Until, and it, it's not, I don't even know that it's, the fact that it's a kid that's on the table, but it's a kid that he's built. He has opened himself up to and exposed sort of a vulnerable point in his personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the fact. And it really, and it's funny because the other two get, you see Sanborn and you see Eldridge get affected by stuff in their own right. This, they're not all that affected by They're you know, grossed out. Sure. Disgusted. Absolutely. But they don't seem to have this visceral emotional reaction to this. It's just another in the long line of fucked up stuff that they've seen yeah. over the course of 300 days. And so they go out back to the, the Humvee fully expecting James to blow this whole place up. And James just like almost completely breaks down in there. Yeah. And and so then James' action, he decides, all right, look, I, I'm going to extract this kid. He opens him up, takes the the the, the, the device out of him. Uh, covers him in a shroud, carries him out, and then basically after that doesn't really give a shit what happens to him then. And then this is also at the point where 
this is, Colonel Cambridge was with them on this, right? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. finally came out. And so Cambridge is out on the street, and he's talking it's probably a little bit too much of a psychologist. He's having way too much conversation <laughs> with the people out on the street, uh, <laughs> trying to convince them that you know this is not a safe place to be, yet this is their neighborhood. So, I mean, really, it's like he keeps on making this argument, not so safe here, not so safe here, and you're – I, I don't know. My impression was like, dude, this is our neighborhood. We we kind of know most of the shit that's going on here. Thanks. Um, and so, I mean, definitely in terms of field operations, uh, he was pretty naive. Um, but I, the situation he found himself in and whatever the hell he stepped on could have been anybody. So, yeah. you know, whether he stepped on something or someone triggered something, we don't really know. Uh, I, I don't think. But. You know, he, like you said, he gets vaporized and there's just a bit left of him. And uh, Eldritch has a real hard time with that because he's like, no, he was right here. He was right here. Yeah. Um, and Eldridge is the one that said something about him coming out in the first place. You know, so yeah. he certainly took responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And Sandboard's like, no, he's he's gone, dude. He's He's absolutely gone. There's nothing left. So, yeah. you know, I mean, the thing is, Eldridge was kind of fragile as it was, I think, um, from the get go of the movie. And this is something that just further shook him up and just didn't go, you know, didn't didn't set well with him um, for, for a lot of obvious yeah. reasons. He almost has a complete break. I mean, he's like confronting this other the adult. DVD seller and the guard is sort of like, well, what do you want me to do about it? These guys are vetted. Like, I can't do anything. I'm just, I'm just the guy that's meant to stand here. <laughs> yeah. And it just goes completely off the rails and takes that guy at gunpoint to, to go off base in the middle of the night. Um, you know, talk about like an insanely dangerous thing to do. And, uh, you know, something that almost gets him killed by his own men as he comes back onto post. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Because I mean, it's we 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 don't have our own people wandering back onto base uh, in in the middle of the night all alone. Uh, that's that's not something that that you expect. Uh -huh. And so yeah, you know, he was looking for answers. He didn't get any. Uh, and then oddly enough, you know, a little while later, there's Beckham back out on the street selling DVDs, and James just flat out fucking ignores him. Yeah. Never again. Which oh, yeah, yeah, James like he put up that wall and he's like, no, I'm I'm I've nope, I'm done. Didn't yeah. didn't need that relationship. That relationship fucked with my head. And uh, yeah, no, we're we're not going back. Yeah, and then he's like right back to to James being James, <clears throat> where they go out and they're investigating a uh, a fuel tanker that's been blown up, and James just decides that they're gonna go find the guy that. <laughs> that set it off are the guys that are observing this. Yep. And I love uh, Sanborn's line. He's like, you got two platoons of infantrymen whose job it is to, to hunt bad guys right back there. Like, we're not supposed to be doing this. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, like the three of them go running off into the darkness to try with no support to try to find the, you know, the insurgents behind all this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I will say that this is, you know, it's, this scene is probably meant to show just the depths of his, I guess, addiction to war, his obsession, that sort of thing. 
this scene came close to breaking the movie for me because it's just like you know you can I, I think in terms of your ability to put up with uh stuff that probably wouldn't happen has a you know a certain breaking point yeah and this came close to it because i was like there's no way that the three of these guys even if he was a complete cowboy would have run off in a fat like it's just i it, it's so against the norm but i you know it's it encapsulates James's character. That's sort of insane risk for, you know, a goal that he's built up the importance of in his own mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But. And then we, we also in that, see. You also have consequences sort of flow for the first time from his actions. <clears throat> um, before this, he manages to, to get out of these situations, these bomb defusings and whatnot with, without really anything happening. But here, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, you actually, I didn't, I, maybe I wasn't watching close enough, but they get split up and you mm-hmm. hear some gunfire and all of a sudden Eldridge is gone. So that the junior member of their party has suddenly left and, or, or gone and they can't find him. And it's this huge moment because that, you know, all of a sudden they have a potential not just a missing soldier, but a, a potential prisoner. Like, you know, I think prior to this point, there's been no point where he's been, he being uh, Eldridge has been in quite that amount of danger, but you see him just briefly getting dragged off uh, by these other insurgents. And, you know, it's, it's this huge, Oh shit moment. Cause you know, sort of what the, the fate that awaits him. if He gets captured like that. And it turns out that uh, James, they, they finally track him down. James open, opens fire, and it's not immediately apparent, but he shoots Eldridge in the leg in the process of shooting these two guys and shatters his femur. And that's just like the complete breaking point uh, for, for Eldridge at that point. You don't, they don't really have an interaction there because he thinks he's, you know, he's, he's injured. He's asking if he's dead. He's freaking out. Uh, but when they're loading him up on the medevac helicopter to get taken out of Iraq, Eldridge finally snaps on him and, you know, you fucking shot me. Like, you know, this, I, I'm done with this. I'm done with this country. Like, get me the fuck out of here. And he's absolutely had it. And I, it, it sort of completes Specialist Eldridge's arc uh, going from this kid who wasn't, he certainly wasn't green by the, behind the ears because he had seen seen plenty of combat up to that point um but you know he he is finally seen enough in 38 days of sergeant james to last a lifetime and he just wants to go home so the last thing that we see for james on this deployment at least is this encounter with uh the iraqi civilian that has a bomb vest uh attached to him and this is one where it really it kind of tugs at the heartstrings quite a bit for me because it's like James is clearly struggling with this and he simply he knows he can't disarm the vest in time it's on a timer but it's got like these hardened steel padlocks all around him and James simply can't get this thing off the guy in time 
Yeah, I mean, and he has to leave. He uses like all of his strength and gets one off. And for a minute, you think he's just going to stay and try to work this problem until he blows up. I mean, he tells um, Sanborn to get back and whatnot. And you think like this is the moment where he's gone completely off the edge. Like this is this is where his obsession catches up to him finally, and this is the end. Yeah. Um, but he has this like emotional moment with the the civilian where he says he can't get him off, and you know they can't they can't understand each other's words, but the Iraqi knows what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. So and yeah, so I mean J- James gets himself at, at a, a reasonable distance away, and and uh, and unfortunately the 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 dude blows up. And then after this, him and Sanborn have a discussion. Sanborn's like, you know, hey, you know, remember earlier I said I never wanted to really get into a committed relationship. I never wanted to have kids. Now I totally want that to happen. I, I want to have a son. I want to, you know, if this is the life I'm going to live, I, I want to have a legacy. And, you know, he, he just kind of does this this whole emotional dump on James. And then that is like perfectly juxtapositioned with the end of their tour. And now the story picks up with James uh, going home and he's just kind of in the, 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 this, the directing focus on this was interesting because it was just on like how mundane his civilian life is. It, 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 which I mean, to an extent, is kind of a, a you know good snapshot of a lot of our lives. But like, he's in the grocery store, and then he's at home making dinner, and I, he, and while he should be enjoying this downtime and enjoying the time with his wife and his kid, he simply can't. Yeah, I mean, I think the only conversation you see with him and his wife is he's talking about a bomb going off in Iraq and how they need more bomb techs. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, even the conversation he has with his son, he's he's effectively talking about his line of work. And that's that's yeah. the saddest moment in the entire movie for me. I you know, my perspective's obviously changed now having a kid, but watching him talk yep. to his son who can't even speak and you know that what he's telling him is like the one thing that I love is disarming bombs. You're like, yep. It just it completely tugs at your heartstrings. Um, yeah. I thought that the, one of my fa- single favorite shots in this entire movie has nothing to do with combat. It's him on the cereal aisle, and it's like the wide shot of like the 250 <laughs> versions of cereal, and he's sitting here like looking around, like the fuck is all this? And yeah, uh, you know his his it's so completely different than his deployed life, where you know his focus is singular. Uh, you know he. he he knows what exactly what he has to do. There are not all these options laid out before him. And then you get back to this. It's just the, the mundaneness of civilian life encapsulated in a single shot. And it, it was just yeah. excellently done. Um, yeah, it, it, it truly is. I mean, the, the overall, the direction on this movie was great. I mean, every, every camera shot in this movie was just like expertly done. And, and and the shots like that truly, you know, a, a picture says a thousand words. I mean, that was that was really it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so then we basically fade from him having, you know, telling his 
telling his son, hey, yeah, there's when you get older, there's only one or two things in your life that you're going to love. And then it cuts to a shot of him walking off the back of uh, uh, walking off the back of a plane, you know, back on base for his next deployment. Yeah. And it says, uh, you know, you get a little caption on the bottom saying, you know, time left to deployment, 300 some odd days. Yeah. Um, so that, that was that, that's, that's how it wraps up. And it's, it's a, it, this movie is a, it's a hell of a journey that they take you on. Oh, completely. Yeah. I, you know, you and I had talked before and it's, it had been a while since I had seen it and I had really forgotten about, um, the emotional punch that it has. And you can set aside, I, you know, I made the comment about, the one scene almost breaking it for me, but you know, I can personally set that stuff aside and I completely agree with the comment you made earlier that like you can strip that stuff away and this is a damn good movie at the core of it. Yeah. 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 The overall story. I mean, there's when you get into a, a, a film that has some kind of comparison to something, you know, technical, the, the, the folks who know that technical stuff oftentimes are going to be critical because movies have to take shortcuts and they also have to make them Hollywood, you know, um, that they have to make them consumable to the general public. And so it's easy for us to get critical of, well, this would never happen and that would never happen. But the overall story of this is really good. The character arcs, I think, are really good. Uh, the direction was just fantastic. It was, it was great. And so I'm, you know, th- this movie actually got nominated for nine Academy Awards, which is really incredible. It won six, yeah. uh, which included Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. And I was blown away by this statistic, uh, by this fact that a movie that was put out in 2009 was the first time that a female director won an Academy Award for Best Picture. <laughs> it's a ridiculous statistic. that was absolutely i'm like what how is that even possible uh that's it's nuts it's absolutely nuts so yeah when i read that i was wow that's it just seems crazy it seems crazy i think it was also the lowest grossing best picture as well it did not have a a particularly good run in the theaters no it really didn't um even for having like the thing has a Rotten Tomatoes rating of ninety seven percent, which is just mind blowing. I mean, that's really really high, and yeah, it just did not do well, even with some really good actors. Although, you know what? I'll tell you, if this movie ran again now, given the bump in star power that Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie have, yeah. I, I think the movie would have done it, it. It would have done better in the in the box office. Um, I mean, it still wouldn't have been. I don't think it would have been blockbuster level. But I think just with their names getting a bump from the MCU work they've done, I think it would have uh, it would have done better. Oh, definitely. We did. We we touched on some of this military lingo across the board, but we certainly can't leave you without your your fill of military lingo for the episode for the movie and there's <laughs> a ton of this i made the comment at the beginning that this movie just weaves it in seamlessly sometimes they they sort of give enough context to explain it sometimes they don't um the first one that i think you hear at all in the movie is bip it and the mm-hmm. acronym is just blow it in place and it's exactly what it sounds like you're not moving 
the item. It doesn't have to be a bomb. It can be literally anything. Um, but you're not going to move it. You're going to set explosives, and you're going to destroy it right where it sits. So if you hear bip or you know just the vernacular bip it, that's what they're talking about. Um, IED yep. we covered in depth on here. Um, VVID or VBED is just vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. So any kind of vehicle, motorcycle, hell, a fucking bicycle or something like that, if it's rigged up to explode, <laughs> that's going to be a, be a VBED. Um, a PBIED, uh, a personnel-borne IED would be if uh, like a suicide bomber was wearing a vest, something like that. So there's a, a few iterations of it. Right. EOD... Uh, it, that literally just stands for Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Uh, these are the specialists that you see in the movie. These are uh, the Army's um, highly technically skilled and trained experts at uh, bomb disposal and uh, everything that goes along with that. Interestingly, there are no officer bomb techs. So you didn't see any here. You have ordnance officers and some ordnance officers that <clears throat> will be in uh, these type of units. But those ground level teams, you're not going to have uh, like a lieutenant or anything like that in there. Um, I worked alongside one of these teams. I was a, a prosecutor for one of these units at uh, Fort Stewart when I was on active duty. And I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I have you know, any kind of in-depth knowledge inside the EOD world. But one thing that I can sort of share is, is the perception of EOD soldiers, uh, you know, in terms of how other soldiers view them. Cause everybody, you know, soldiers have their perception of JAG officers, probably not a great one. Soldiers have their perception. <laughs> you, you name your position and there's a perception about it or, the, you know, whatever else. Sure. And I would say with EOD soldiers, at least in my experience, these were the guys that, if you think about the fire axe that's behind the glass that you break in case of emergency, <clears throat> the that's EOD for you, right? These are guys that yeah, are totally. regarded as are are exceptionally highly regarded, uh, both because they have a lot of cojones, but also because they're among the most technically uh, and tactically proficient soldiers that the army has. A lot of these folks, uh, you get a lot of. Uh, what I would call MOS reclasses. So those are folks that had one job and then changed mm -hmm. over. And this movie gives you a great example of that because Sergeant Sanborn, Anthony Mackey's character is one of them. He says he was an intelligence soldier for a number of years. And based on, yep. you see him wearing some badges, some, some skill badges and stuff on his uniform. He's wearing, it's, it's got a, it's like a musket with a wreath around it, which is a combat infantryman badge, which that may be an inaccuracy in the movie, but, uh, because a, a a CIB, as it's called for short, is available to infantry soldiers who have been in combat. So there's the distinct potential that Mackey's character was an infantryman on some level. Maybe he was involved in intelligence-type work and saw combat before this. But the reason I bring that up is you get a lot of folks who this is their second career, so to speak, within the Army. So they're bringing a lot of experience, mm -hmm. a wealth of knowledge, and then they're getting that layered uh, sort of technical expertise put on top of that. So these are very, very highly regarded right. soldiers. It's not a massive community. Um, you know, the Army doesn't have scores of these soldiers, but uh, they're treated as an exceptionally valuable asset, somebody that a lot of folks look up to. Um, yeah. And then 
the last one, they don't ever say it in the movie, but you see them all over the place. <clears throat> uh, the word would be, or the acronym would be CHEW. It's, in the vernacular, it's just uh, a living unit, right? So you see them go into Sergeant James' room. That's his CHEW. It's a containerized housing unit. So any kind of shipping container that's been converted to be a, a living quarters. And on a lot of bases, it both... Iraq and Afghanistan, this was the bulk of, of housing um, once they got past living in tents and stuff and, and started to improve the bases a little bit. Uh, far cheaper than just scratch building <coughs> housing for, for soldiers because you could just convert these shipping containers. Uh, but if you ever right. see some, hear somebody refer to, to going to their chew or living out of a <clears throat> chew, that's what they're talking about. And that's your military lingo. Cool. Very good. Very good. Uh, let's see. A lot of this movie was filmed in Jordan, uh, actually just within a few miles of the Iraqi border. And so there are a lot of Iraqi refugees that were in the area. And a good number of them were actually hired uh, to be extras and such if they were found to have like a theater background or something like that. And uh, I guess the most notable one was actually the guy uh, toward the end who had the uh, the vest Locked to him. Um, he was a uh, he was an Iraqi refugee and got a, a a pretty prominent but very short role. Some might even call it though an explosive role. <laughs> that was bad. That was really bad. I'm kind of ashamed of myself for that His one. Big break. <laughs> <laughs> there was some notes in here that uh, the filming area didn't have the typical Hollywood comforts. Uh, I guess there was no air conditioning. Uh, in in uh, where they were living, they had to share bathrooms. Uh, they were shot at at least a couple of times uh, during filming, and 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 the heat was was pretty crazy. And I don't, that's that's really about it. I, I we covered some of the funnier moments of this. Uh, we mentioned the spit and rub. We mentioned the uh, national police officer told to go check out the bomb in the trunk. Um, I also, for some reason, I found it very funny that particularly between Sanborn and Eldridge, there were a lot of pleases and thank yous. <laughs> I don't know if that stood out to you, no. Tom, like it did to me, but like it, it seemed to be an exceptional amount. I mean, especially <laughs> in a you know in a military structure and in a in a in a rank organized structure where Sanborn can just tell Eldridge to do something. There was just, there were a lot of pleases and thank yous with it. An exceptional amount. <laughs> He's just a good NCO, so, a respectful one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess. It, but that just, it stood out to me and it, it stood out to me. as just really kind of being funny because yeah. it got to the, like it happened more than a couple times and it kept on happening. And I'm like, that's just odd. I've, I've never. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Is there anything that we didn't hit on that you want to catch before we close? No, no. I think my my final thought would be that that movie was as uh, you know sort of brutal as it was the first time that that I remember watching it in the theater. Um, mm-hmm. But I I really enjoyed it. It's it's one I had f- forgotten how good it was. So I'm glad we covered it here. Yeah, yeah. And this is generally regarded as uh, one of the best uh iraqi war uh films on the iraq war uh, i mean granted there's not many of them but there are a few good ones and uh yeah this one's exceptionally done so uh the next movie that we're gonna hit uh and of course in typical 
dispatches from the front style. Tom and I decided this moments before we hit the record button. Uh, and that is Fury. So we are going to uh, to be covering that movie next. And hopefully it's not going to take us as long as it uh, as it did um, between episodes to get to this. We know that we had a bunch of folks hitting us up on Discord and on social media to um, wondering what happened to us. And, uh, you know, just life. So we will definitely be back to you and with Fury. And so with that, we're going to close. Um, Tom actually had to bounce because he had to hit a family reunion. So uh, we definitely appreciate you sending us your feedback. You can shoot us an email to dispatches at randomchatter.com. You can find us online. Uh, Twitter is a great way to do so. You can hit up the network at Random Chatter. You can find me at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. And you can find Tom, I believe it's at Thomas L. Harper. Uh, you can find all of our shows at randomchatter.com. We definitely appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us, leaving us reviews wherever it is you find your podcast, telling your friends, family members, and coworkers about us. Uh, contributions by way of Patreon. Head over to randomchatter.com slash Patreon, uh, contributing to the network. We definitely appreciate it. It helps us to keep the proverbial lights on and handle all the technological stuff that we have to and data storage and distribution and all that good stuff, um, as well as our tea public shop that I mentioned at the front of the episode. And you can also join our discussion on discord, head over to randomchatter.com slash discord. Uh, that will, uh, that will get you into our uh, free public lobby as well as our show channels. So you can discuss all this stuff that we talk about here on our shows and uh, enjoy the camaraderie of all the folks we have over in Discord. Uh, but any contribution through Patreon, which starts at a dollar a month, gets you full access to our Discord community. And there's dozens of channels in there talking about all sorts of different things. I'm going to do Tom's disclaimer. So... Here it goes. I'm not going to do it as well as him, but I'm going to give it a shot. Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. All original content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. So there it is, folks. Thanks for joining us again. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Please shoot us some feedback, and we will catch you on the next episode for Fury. Fury.